Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day morning. And as the sun shines and we enjoy this beautiful morning, we are reminded of Your goodness to us in Christ. Uh, We are reminded that Your favor has shone upon us in Christ's death and resurrection. And we thank You that it is in the life of Christ that we find our righteousness. It is in the death of Christ that we find our atonement. It is in the resurrection of Christ that we find our victory and eternal life. And all of this comes from Your unmerited favor to us. Now it is in Christ and by His Spirit that we go to Your Word and we seek to know Your Word, to know Your will as You have revealed it to us. And today we look at the Proverbs and the wisdom that you have conveyed to us, a people who are without wisdom unless you grant it to us. And so we pray for wisdom. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and give us eyes to see as you teach us to understand justice and righteousness, not according to the world's definition, but according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a, a brief uh, review from, from last week. Really, we spent most of last week uh, defining our terms and understanding. So what does the Bible mean when the Bible talks about uh, righteousness and justice? Maybe we should just narrow that scope a bit. What, what does righteousness and justice mean as it is defined within the Proverbs? And you may recall last week uh, that I, I sort of, in, in a moment, it sort of felt like a wandering diatribe where I described the, the holistic understanding of wisdom within the Proverbs as, to, as opposed to a more Western understanding of, of topics and categories and, and how the Proverbs is, is so uh, deep in its understanding and teaching of, of wisdom, but also so differing as we walk through it. But what I was trying to convey last week in, in, in discussing that was look for righteousness, look for justice to be defined in the Proverbs in some of the most unlikely places. Uh, And that's why it's important for us to understand that it's good for us to understand topics. And of course, the way that that our minds work and the way that we're educated, we we need categories, we need order, we need topics, and, and those are good things. But oftentimes, we can find varying topics of wisdom within one proverb, can't we? Uh, there, there is much truth in many ways in which the Proverbs teach. And so we're doing a topical study today, right? But we want to make sure that as you're doing your own study through the book of Proverbs, and if you're doing our Read Through the Bible in a Year uh, guide, and it's never too late to start that, by the way, just jump in on today's date and go forward. Uh, we take little bite-sized chunks of the Proverbs, don't we? And so there's a proverb, I believe it was, was it just one or two proverbs this morning? Um, bite-sized chunks, those are great ways for us to introduce ourselves to, to the proverbs. Well, what did we find last week? What we found was, is that justice, as it is defined in the proverbs, can be understood in uh, two different ways. One, in the sense of justice, that is retribution for sin or punishment for wrongdoing. Oftentimes that's the way that we think of justice Uh, but also in Proverbs, and we actually find this more in Proverbs, and that is restorative justice. And that's the sense in which those who are unrightfully hurt or wronged are restored and given back what was taken from them. 
Um, we see this, of course, also in uh, the Apostle James' letter as well. This type of idea of justice is to be served, and it is a restorative justice. And so it's not merely uh, that there is punishment, but there is also replacement or restoration. And so both of these help us with this idea of justice within the Proverbs. When we couple that with righteousness, righteousness is one, of course, one of the attributes of God, as is justice, but it is an acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. Free from guilt or sin, acting in accord with divine or moral law. And of course, God is perfect righteousness. And so that which flows from Him, as He has given to us in His moral law, for example, is the perfect statement of this righteousness. We also said that God's righteousness may be understood as the ethical dimension of His holiness. God is a holy God. The ethical flow from that, we could say, is His righteousness. Okay, so last week we asked the question, we're going to return to this question today, and that is, how is God's justice witnessed in this world? How is God's justice witnessed in this world? Now, here's the important thing to remember, and I know everyone knows this, so I am stating the obvious, but God is perfect justice. His justice is always perfect. However, in the world, how God's justice is accomplished is not, is not accomplished in perfect people or perfect ways. And yet, God's justice is always accomplished according to His purpose. And so, that's important for us to remember, isn't it? Because oftentimes we want to think of these terms of justice and righteousness in static terms. And that's right in terms of God's attribute. But as it is played out, as it is carried out, it is not carried out in perfect people or perfect ways. And incidentally, we get a perfect example of that just simply reading through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. You can keep, see that in the, in the Judges. It always astounds people when they get to, to Hebrews chapter 11 and they're, they're reading, uh, you know, what do they call it, the, the Hall of Fame of Faith or something like that. And they're reading along and they get to Samson. And they're like, what? That guy was a rogue. He was a womanizer. He sat up here as an example for us. Because why? Because we like to think of righteousness and justice in these nice, orderly, static terms. But what we see is oftentimes what God purposes and accomplishes is accomplished through rogues. Like you, right? And like me. And like Samson. And so that's important for us to remember as we look back at what we looked at last week, and that is that one of the ways that God's justice is accomplished is through civil authority. Civil authority. And then the second way that we looked at that, so incidentally, you should have this on your handout, but if you don't, that was referencing Proverbs 8.15, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. Now when we read that again, uh, we want to think of that in static term. Does it mean that, that rulers always decree what is just? No. Does it mean that sometimes the justice that happens comes in muddled and clouded ways? Yes. 
But as it is described here in Proverbs, we see that this civil authority comes from God. And then this other proverb that we looked at was Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is the Lord that a man gets justice. And so God works through, through the means of people and the, the means of this world, uh, but ultimately justice comes from God. The second area that we looked at last week was uh, the air, uh, topic of chance. Chance. And of course, I'm, I'm uh, putting that in uh, quotation marks. The idea is, is that, of course, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He is sovereign over every nanosecond of our existence. So in this sense, there is no such thing as chance. But it's okay to use this word because what do we mean by that word? We, we don't know how it happened, but... It, it, it happened. It seems to be a chance. And, and last week we looked at Proverbs 18, 17 through 18. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and examines him. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Um, so this would be like the equivalent of saying the roll of the dice. Uh, solves uh, any kind of disagreement such as this, and yet we're told who is in control of the lot. Well, Proverbs uh, 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. So God is sovereign even over the casting of the lot, the rolling of the dice, etc. And uh, did we look at... No. So that brings us up to speed to where we are today. This third topic that I want us to look at within how does God accomplish justice in this world is civil judgment and punishment. Civil judgment and punishment. Look with me at Proverbs 22, verses 22 through 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Okay, now, to be clear, there's nothing stated within this Proverbs that is specifically referencing civil judgment or punishment. I realize that. Bear with me for just a moment. The reason that I'm drawing your attention to this is the implication. Look with me inside this proverb where it says that the uh, and crush the afflicted at the gate. That gate, scholars say, is referencing a place of governmental uh, authority, a place in which judging will occur would occur within that civilization at that time. And so the implication is that civil judgment and punishment is necessary and it's oftentimes carried out within this society at the gate, the place uh, of prominence for rulers of that city. So let's break this down. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. What's the general understanding? What's the, what's the sage teaching us in this? So how might how, how might the poor be? So we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll agree the the poor are poor. So so how how would the poor how what, what how would the poor be robbed? Well, 
What would be some examples? Let's bring this into our modern society, if we will. Um, how, how would we, as a society, rob the poor? Yeah, Don? Yeah, it's an idea of, of, of taking advantage of someone who doesn't have the means. And the idea here, sometimes we don't see it in terms of, of poverty, do we? Sometimes we might think of the widow or the orphan or whatever. But the idea here is it's someone that does not have the financial means to maybe hire a lawyer, someone who, who is typically in a disadvantaged position. In this point, place, it's economic. But the general idea, as Don said, the general idea is that this is someone who is a position of weakness or helplessness, and we need to be careful that we don't take advantage, that we don't hurt those who are helpless or take advantage of those who are helpless. The idea of robbing the poor, again, is a statement could be literal, couldn't it? I mean, it, it could, but if you think about it, really, what, do the, what, do you, what, what would you rob from the poor? The, that's exactly right. They don't really have, we think of robbing as goods in our home and you come in, but if the, the poor are truly destitute in this sense, there's really nothing to rob from them other than opportunity, other than wages. So that, that'd be a good reference to, to James, wouldn't it? Uh, stealing, James warns against not paying someone as they have earned or paying someone appropriately. Um, so the idea is taking advantage of someone who is in a difficult situation. And then the second half of this is, or crush the afflicted at the gate. What's the imagery there? Or let me, let me tell you what the imagery is. You tell me the modern application. So the imagery would be someone who is afflicted either by illness or by sickness. Maybe they are lame. Maybe they're on crutches. Uh, maybe they are of an age where they're not able to move as quickly as they used to be able to give. Whatever the case is, they are afflicted in terms of their mobility. And, and, and we, we see this in, in an example within, uh, is it First or Second Kings? No, it's Second Kings, isn't it? Um, where uh, everybody rushes out to the city to, to go and, and take advantage of the spoil that is left out uh, of the army that has been rushed off by God and uh, the person who had denied the prophecy is crushed at the gate. You remember the story? Yeah, so that's the imagery here is that someone is at the gate. Everyone is moving out in some sort of like uh, soccer field extravaganza. Everybody's crushing in to get through this gate and the person who is immobile is helpless like the poor, you see what he's doing here, right? So his helpless is then crushed. So stop there for just a second. So now we've got two points of imagery. We have someone who is, is poor. We have someone who now is physically uh, disabled in some way. And again, what is the general concept that the sage is conveying here about just that part? Be cognizant of those who have less than you have and who are at a disadvantage to what you are. Be mindful. So you won't crush someone at the gate if you say, let's be mindful of this person who cannot get out of the way when we storm the gate. So, so it, it, it's an awareness, isn't it? It's a general idea of, of saying, I understand this. And that's the same thing with the poor. If the poor are truly poor, there's nothing you can steal from them. But if you're not aware 
of their situation, if you're not paying attention to what their lot in life is at that time, then it can lead to this sense of robbing. But the main thing that he's wanting to take us to is this. Look at the second half. For the Lord will plead their cause. Who's there? Poor and the afflicted. For the Lord will plead their cause and... Note the play on words here, the poetry of rob and rob, and rob of life those who rob them. Now again, is using the, the imagery of the verb here being uh, rob, but the general idea is what? What is this telling us about God and what God does in terms of our lack of sensitivity, our lack of awareness, our lack of, of, of attention to those who are at a disadvantage. What does it say? God cares. God is the one who takes care of the widow and the orphan, right? And I'm using that example, of course, you realize because of its reference in James. How does God take care of the disadvantaged? That's right. Yeah, in terms of an application of the law and, and the punishment thereof. That's right. Yeah. But, but, but generally, the, the, the idea of, of, of what, what, what our heart attitude is to be, what are we learning here? Yeah, I mean, really what, what we're being taught here under the guise of civil judgment and punishment is that we're to understand justice not in the sense of our justice, but God's justice. See, what he's doing here is he's placing us in the position to see this through the lens that God sees it. And that is not how we typically see it, right? If I am wronged, if you wrong me, what is my natural inclination? Yeah, then it's reciprocity, isn't it, Don? Then what's that? Yeah, get you back. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how I'm wired. That's how you're wired. That's our flesh. So we want to retaliate by virtue of how we have been affected. And so our justice becomes, and, and, and incidentally, everybody in here, we all see this, right? So this is, this is in our culture, and it is permeated into especially certain generations within our culture of victimhood, right? So the victimhood is, is the idea that the most important aspect of justice is me, my, my justice, Right? And so, and I'm not going to get on a soapbox after going through a pandemic and all the weirdo stuff that, we, that people got jacked up about, but what did you see? It's all about me, all about my justice. And if you impair my justice, well, man, I'm telling you what, I'll run you over at the gate. I'll rob you blind. What's the sage telling us? Whoa, hold on. No, I want you to see the poor the way God sees the poor. I want you to see the afflicted the way God sees the afflicted because God is a just God and He's going to carry out His justice as He pleases and you're just not that big of a deal. But you need to see 
those who are less advantaged in you as God sees it. The other aspect of this that I will add, and it's, 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 a, it's a reaching implication, but that's this, that good government will seek to protect the poor and afflicted from the wicked or indifferent. Um, and incidentally, that is a consistent theme. If you ever want to do a study on the Proverbs, on just how the Proverbs addresses good government. And instantly there are books written on this. It's not hard to find. Um, that is one of the themes of Proverbs, uh, that good government will seek to protect the poor, will seek to protect the afflicted from not only the wicked, but also the indifferent. Those that are just happy in their affluence and don't care. Why, why should I care as long as my little life is happy and I'm in this insulated little bubble and it's all nice and, and what, what do I have to care about someone else that is poor or afflicted? And so the general idea is that good government uh, is to assist in that. So how does God see, how do we see, witness God's uh, justice within this world? Albeit imperfectly, uh, we see it in civil authority, we see it in chance, we see it in civil judgment and punishment. We also see it in impartiality. Impartiality. Look at uh, Proverbs, I've broken this up, but Proverbs 24, 25, and 26, I'm drawing from the second half of 25, I believe. Those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. All right, so let's look at the first uh, verse, uh, second half of, of 25 here. Those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. First clause, those who rebuke the wicked will have delight. What is the general message of that clause? And how, how does delight come from rebuking the wicked? And what does it mean to rebuke the wicked? Not everybody at once. So, true, true. So it could be literal, rebuking could be speaking right? But oftentimes, what do we see in the Proverbs? The, the speaking or the word is often a metaphor for doing, right? So how hard is it for me to speak out against something and, and, and uh, as I say, vent my spleen? Let somebody know the truth. You know the truth, I'll tell you how it is, right? The Proverbs says, yeah, but that can be shallow. That can be surface level. That can be just, yeah, Right? Oftentimes, the idea is what? Those who rebuke the wicked, if that is not just saying but doing, it's acting, then what? Then you've done what is right. When you do what is right, this is really practical, isn't it? When you do what is right, is that a delight? It is. When you stand up for something, even if those who are against you, even there are people that are opposed to you, even if you are persecuted for it, if you stand up for right, can you delight even while being persecuted? Yep, you sure can. I promise. I've witnessed it myself. You have too, I'm sure. And so there is a delight that comes from this. But the second half of that clause says, and a good blessing will come upon them. So the idea is that a blessing is coming from outside of them. And who gives this blessing? Who, may we imply, gives this blessing? 
Yeah, God. So the idea, again, I know it's not stated explicitly here, but, but I'm betting the blessing doesn't come from you. It could come through you, but a blessing comes from God by virtue of standing up for what is right according to God's sense of justice. Then the second verse that follows is whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. So beautiful poetic imagery here, right? So is there anything really outwardly more intimate than of kissing, kissing on the lips? Um, scholars debate, interestingly enough, if, if you want to go down this road as to when kissing on the lips first came into practice. I'm like, I'm thinking that was Adam and Eve. Yeah, right? Um, but it, it's curiously enough, doesn't show up in the earlier writings prior to the Hebrew writings that we see in, in culture. At some point, there is a closeness, and in this sense, then it begins to show up in ancient literature as a form of, of intimacy. Now, it's not always, um, there's not always a sexual impl- implication, and there's certainly not a sexual implication here, but the general idea is one of close proximity, intimacy, and in, in this case, uh, so, and I, I know, you know, I, I don't kiss anybody on the lips but my wife, um, so this is hard, but I know some people in some cultures do, but the general idea here is that kissing on the lips is someone that you can trust, it's someone that you've gotten close enough where you know that, uh, that, that you can trust this person. So now look back at the proverb. Whoever gives an honest answer. How is an honest answer like kissing on the lips? Yeah, and not just our culture, right? Because the sage is writing about this thousands of years ago. So apparently, an honest answer is hard to come by. We thought this was just the United States of America in 2022, right? No, it's always been a problem. As far as I know, a dishonest answer goes as far back as Eden. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go all the way back to Eden, right? Uh, because we, we know, at least uh, east of Eden, we, we know that the first dishonest answer uh, came from... Uh, actually, that's not true. The first dishonest answer came from Adam. The second dishonest answer came from his son, Cain, right? So we know this has been going around for a long time. How is it like kissing on the lips? Kissing on the lips is an idea of intimacy, of trust, and so uh, someone who gives an honest answer, you know. This is someone that you trust deeply because you can trust what they say. Now, in looking at these two together, however, there's another message that may not be as obvious, and that's one of impartiality. Those who rebuke the wicked will have delight. The general idea here is that this is someone who does right. They speak the truth, they do the truth, and therefore, because they speak and do the truth, they are someone who will, in fact, not show partiality. You can trust them. In other words, if, you, if it, we think about it in terms of a courtroom setting, is if someone gets upon a witness stand, and if any of you have ever encountered this, it, it, it is extraordinarily aggravating. I've not been to a court but a few times, but, but I've le- literally been in a courtroom where someone got on the witness stand and lied. 
And, I, and it, it, if you've ever encountered this before, it just goes all over you. I mean, you want to just grab and shout at the judge. They're, they're lying. Can you not see that they're lying right there in front of you? And it just really bothers you, doesn't it? And if the judge then is connected to that person or finds favor with them or whatever the case is, then all of a sudden there is a clear impartiality. I told you the example that I was reading the newspaper not too long ago about, a, about a, a court case and the judge sided with a certain lawyer over another certain lawyer. It just so happened that the certain lawyer he sided with was a guy that he played sports with. And all of a sudden it gets a little dirty. Starts feeling kind of, wow, that seems out of whack. And it bothers us, doesn't it? To the core. Because within us, God who has created us in his, our image, we have an innate desire for justice even though we can't live it, even though we can't carry it out appropriately, we all have an inner sense of justice. And so when we see someone, in our case, let's hope it's us, who's standing up against the wicked and are blessed by God by virtue of it, who gives an honest answer, in that sense, we see God's justice and a sense of impartiality. Number five, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, the general idea here is protecting the helpless. I know this is a repeating theme, uh, but I wanted to break this out separately. Protecting the helpless. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. All right, so... First of all, open... So how many pronounce the word M-U-T-E, mute, with a Y, and how do you pronounce it moo with an U? So raise your hand if you pronounce it mu with a U, mute. I've worked with deaf people for many years, and it's mute. It's mute, okay? How many of you pronounce it moot? Yeah, 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 okay. Well, good, good point, good, good news. You can pronounce it both ways. Oh, really? Yeah. So I like to do both. I like to just in the same sentence say stand up for the mute, stand up for the moot. That kind of throws everybody off balance. Does he really know how to pronounce the word? All right. So open your mouth for the moot. What's that mean? What's the general idea there? Yeah, same thing that we discussed just a minute ago. Note the poetic imagery here. Right? It's really beautifully written. Open your mouth. The, the mute cannot speak, right? I mean, they can open their mouth, but this is poetic imagery here. So the idea is you're speaking on behalf of the one who cannot speak, right? That's the general idea. Then the sage transitions it over to that person's rights. Note, however, it's not talking about your rights, is it? In fact, your rights don't show up anywhere in this proverb, do they? Hmm. Open your mouth for the one who can't speak, for the rights of all who are destitute. So now you're standing up for whose rights? The presumption is you're not destitute, right? That's the presumption. The presumption is you're in a place to help others who are needy. And then note the poetic imagery again. Now the sage repeats it. This is a point of, of, of emphasis when you see a repetition. Exact same Hebrew phrase. Open your mouth again. But this time, instead of speaking for the mute, it says judge righteously. 
Note the two words in our study, justice and righteousness, are combined here. The general idea here is that you are to understand, you are to see the circumstances of life through the lens of God's righteousness, through the lens of God's justice, not yours, not how you see things as they ought to be, but as God does. And then we see it coupled with not only what you're to say, not only what you're to see, but now we see it's also combined into what? What you will do. So we read it all again. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor. See what he's doing there? So, so how, what the sage is describing for us is, is all of us, right? What I think is important about what I say. What I say is important about what I do. This is a holistic approach to this idea of God's righteous justice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, the implications of the fifth commandment. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. 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 And their life. Yeah. 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 That's, 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 I, yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah. Uh, and I, I might add, too, for, for those of us that are very comfortable in that realm, it's helpful for, for us, then since we've got that, then to look at other areas that we tend to be blind to, um, because that's, that's the case, too, right? We, we, we sort of, I mean, we conservative evangelicals, abortion's our hobby horse, and I might add, a right one and a good one and a, and a platform that we should stand on, but it also can lead us to become so obsessed with it, as I said before, is that, you know, thou shalt not commit a murder is just one of Ten Commandments. Um, I know good Christian friends who would have me believe it's the only one or the superior one uh, when it's not. And so we want to be careful to not be blinded. We want to look and and not be uh, impartial. And we want to protect the helpless, uh, even those areas that we might be blinded against. Uh, What areas might we be blinded against? Who who are the helpless in our society today uh, that we might often overlook who need help protecting, in addition to the unborn? And we've got that, and that'd that'd be an important one. Yes? Yeah, children. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a a great area for us to to, to step in, to exercise righteous justice uh, in that and protecting children who are vulnerable. Um, This is one of the reasons why our our church encourages uh, involvement in and support in uh, with uh, the, uh, yeah, the name, I've lost it. The call, thank you. Yeah, with the call. Stepping in and helping with foster care through the call uh, and, um, and helping with children who are disadvantaged. Yeah, what else? What are other areas that are often overlooked by us as modern Christians? <clears throat> that's right that's exactly right in an age where uh, euthanasia for example and that may not have been where you were going but I mean with, with uh, the, the age of those who are helpless those who may not have family 
to defend their rights and to take care of them. Um, all of a sudden now we're seeing that uh, as uh, abortion gets a whole lot of attention right now, and if you're like a person that, that watches the news, you know, you, that'd be the, like the only thing happening in the whole world, right? Um, but at the same time, deceptively within nursing homes and other places like this, euthanasia begins to be a more cloudy area, and are we respecting life the way that we have uh, to, like you said, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, life of the unborn, life of the, the aged. That's good. And even yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, even those who are shut in and, and, and need help. Yeah. All right, this is good. Uh, number six, righteous and just living. Proverbs 29, whoop. Righteous and just, we'll just list it as this. Living. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. But one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. All right. What's, what's the general idea of this proverb? We're all an abomination. Well, true. True. We, we note here this word that we talked about right at the beginning of this study, uh, an abomination. So, so what is an abomination again? It's something that's hated. Right, And so in this case, an unjust man is hated by, is an abomination to whom? The righteous. Now, note here that it did not say an unrighteous man is an abomination to a righteous man. That's how you and I would have written it, right? It doesn't say that. It says an unjust man. Why is an unjust man hated by a righteous man? Yeah, it's contrary to God's standard of righteousness. And so when we look on someone who behaves in an unjust way, and incidentally, incidentally, this is a good practice for us to remember. It is not wrong for us as Christians to be repulsed by injustice. It is not wrong for us to be repulsed by wickedness. Our culture has tried to teach us that we are to tolerate things in the sense that we are to treat them as if they are not wickedness. Now, of course, the opposite swing of that is that we can become so repulsed by it that we become like the Pharisees instead of like Jesus, right? But that's, that's, that's a, a wrong view, and it's certainly not what the Proverbs is talking about, is that we are to have the mind of Christ in the sense that we are repulsed by wickedness and show love and mercy to those who may even be engaged in things that are indeed repulsive because of its unrighteousness or its injustice, so forth and so on. But back to this proverb, an unjust man is hated by the righteous because he loves God's righteousness as it's revealed in his law, for example, so forth and so on. Now look at the second clause. But one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Now, what's the, the metaphor here? What's the, the idea of uh, one whose way is straight? What, what does that mean? We say someone's on the straight and narrow. What do, what do we mean by that? Yeah, a righteous life, right? Uh, so uh, when, when, when we look on someone and we, we say, you know what, 
that, that, that person is living a, a moral life. And we compliment them. We're saying, well, they're, they're living in a straight way, in accordance with God's way. And that's the metaphorical idea here. Yes? Okay, good. Only according to God's Yeah, God's way of living. That's right. That's right. So one whose way, why is righteous living, why is righteous living repulsive to the wicked? Why? Why do they hate it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because the wicked does what flows from the heart and mind, right? Their deeds, their wicked deeds flow from what they think, what they believe, what they hold dear. And so it's a real turnoff. So if any of you have ever, I, I mean, I, I think about growing up, and I think about it in, so, so I, I grew up in, an athlete, using that term very loosely, because I wasn't a very good one. But um, thinking about that, and in terms of uh, the athletic locker room, and things that get said, and things that get done, and a, a locker room, and then and if you're, if you're the straight guy, if you're the guy that doesn't engage in things, uh, w- what's the response to you? I'm just asking the guys, right? You're, you're mocked. You're made fun of. You jeered a little bit for being, being the, the good guy, so forth and so on. And, and so the, the, the idea here is that the, those who are engaged in wickedness, when they see someone who's on the straight path, who's living a righteous life, they're repulsed by it. They hate it. Yes. You can be in a group somewhere or a group just bowing their heads and praying for your lunch. Yeah. And someone gets upset about it. Yeah. They attack you like like you're trying to say that they're Mm. terrible and they've never said a word. Yeah. You bowed your head and someone gets Mm. enraged by it. Yeah. As if you're out there telling them they should destroy Have you ever had that happen? I've actually instantly never had that happen to me. (laughs) Yeah. Huh. All right. J.D.? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, but, t- tell me what you mean by their act of abomination. You mean toward them or... Go- tell me, I'm not sure the use of that word. Well, what you've been talking about, they're, they're going against the moral law like if somebody's carrying out. Yeah. It creates guilt on them. Yeah. They know they're wrong, but they'll still condemn it. Yeah. And ostracize you for it. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know what? I think you're exactly right. So if you couldn't hear Hilda, what she said was is that, that there are people who will look on in a sense they want to see you fall. They want to see you engage with them in some kind of unrighteousness. And then on the other hand, it's in a sense they're disappointed. It's, it's all, almost like uh, David's son. Okay, now I've drawn a blank. Da- David's son who committed adultery with his... Uh, yeah, it was Absalom. No, no, Absalom defended it. Uh, yeah, Adonijah, thank you. And da- David's daughter, help me here, Don. Uh, Tamar. Is that right? No, that couldn't be. No? Bible trivia, folks, you got to help me here. I hit 50 and my memory's gone. I'm relying on you. You Bible people. 
Um, yeah, so my point is just simply, you know the story. They, they, you know, so, 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 so he commits the sin, and then he tur- his affection turns, right? And in a certain sense, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. They, they want to see you fall, and then in a sense, it's like, ah, yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I've not thought of that before, but I think you're right. Um, those who live righteous lives and love righteousness are in fact repulsed by the unjust. Uh, Note how the unjust man is contrasted, not with the just man, but with the righteous or upright man. In contrast, wicked are repulsed by those who live righteously. Uh, I'm going to close with this, but this is a quote from one of the scholars in the Proverbs. He says, "...the conflict of right and wrong, good and evil, is fundamental." uncompromising, passionate. Nothing can mitigate their mutual antagonism and loathing. Uh, and, and the reason why I, I convey that quote is, is that we should not be surprised that there is a distinction between good and evil, between right and wrong. When we don't see that distinction within the world and in our lives, that should cause us caution. I'm not saying that it means that you or I are engaging in something that's wrong or evil. What I'm saying is, is that good and evil, right and wrong, are so such polar, polar opposites as God has designed things that we should consistently see them. Now, to, what we want to be careful here is I'm not saying that we see them by our own manufacturer. I've seen evangelical Christians create things that are supposedly evil, that are... Not. I've seen some people, I was with a man at a retreat recently, he says, John, do you, you use social media? And uh, I said, um, well, I try not to. I'm not a big social media fan, um, but I do, I do have an account that I, I keep mainly to get videos that I never watch for my children. And, um, and, and uh, he said, I didn't ask what he thought about social media. So I think that's a tool of the devil. And um, I said, well, as much as I want to jump on that bandwagon with you, because uh, I do think it's awful, I said, I don't think it's a tool of the devil. I think it's amoral. But I'm amazed what people do with it that is wicked. And I would imagine, supposedly, people that do good things with it as well. And so I'm being sarcastic, of course. But the point is, is that we do have a tendency to make certain things into evil that's not. We also tend to make things into good. That is, they're simply amoral and neutral. But the general idea that the sage is teaching us here is, is that there is a clear distinction. By God's design, there is a clear distinction, and we are to live in such a way where that distinction is always clear to us. And when it is not clear, when it begins to become a little bit cloudy, that should cause us pause. That should cause us caution to back up. Well, that's all the time we've got for today. Uh, Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, as we prayed at the beginning of the study for wisdom, so also we continue to pray for it. For our need for wisdom does not cease at the end of this class, but is ongoing. And yet you have so graciously taught us in your word, your truth, regarding righteousness and justice. We pray that we would be not merely hearers, but so also doers of your word. We also pray that as we consider our unrighteousness and our need to be right with you, 
Help us to think upon your perfect justice poured out upon Christ our Savior, upon His atoning death, righteousness and justice reigned according to your provision in His death and resurrection. And it is only through His death and resurrection that we are able together and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so that is our desire this morning. Prepare our hearts for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.